0: My name is Corey Burris, and I have the honor of working for the Georgia Center for Opportunity, where we live by the motto, not for self, but for others. Every day, I get to talk with people breaking through serving their communities. These are nonprofit leaders, local volunteers, and businesses. This is the Breakthrough Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chelsea Sable of the Foster Carolines. They approach foster care from a unique perspective by helping mothers address trauma with the intent of reunification. We discuss how they created ways to train and equip mothers in poverty for new opportunities ahead. Well, we have with us Chelsea Sabo of the Foster Care Alliance. Chelsea, thank you for joining us. Um, Tell me a little bit about what the Foster Care Alliance is and like, kind of how you got started as an organization.
1: Sure. Um, So the Foster Care Alliance is a nonprofit organization in Atlanta, Georgia, and we work in the foster care arena, but in a really unique way. So we work with birth moms. And I will say most of the time people think Foster Care Alliance, we work with foster parents, we work with foster children, but we are really trying to affect change in a unique and different way. And so we work with the biological birth moms to either help avoid out-of-home placement by working with family preservation or working with birth moms whose children are already involved with the Department of Family and Children's Services. And so with that, um, we work primarily with these single moms on trauma intervention. So everything we do is a unique model to Foster Care Alliance that really wraps services around them in a biopsychosocial model. So we don't believe it's just the emotional well-being but it also matters what their physical health is like and it also matters what their social life is like and having that social support around them. And so we really focus in on their trauma and how that is impacted where they are today, but in a way that um, that cares for every part of that mom. Um, our program is 36 weeks. It goes through three phases and it follows the three phases of um, trauma recovery. We started, A little over three years ago. um, And when we started, I had an idea that um, after being a foster parent myself and going through a ton of training and lots of hours on trauma, and I looked at it and I said, I kept asking the question, well, what about parents? What about adults? Can this trauma intervention work? And everyone kept saying, well, I think so, but there's not a lot of research around it. And for me, this was really important because just like all other foster parents, I got into it to help children. And my biggest surprise in foster care, when people will ask me about what my biggest surprise is, I'll tell them my biggest surprise is that I adopted first of all, because I'm a single mom and I signed up for respite care. So I never anticipated adopting my son three and a half years later. But my second biggest surprise was that I fell in love with his birth family. I really have to admit that I got into foster care thinking that birth families were the bump in the road. They were the ones that hurt him. They were the ones that needed to be um, eliminated from the story in order to help my child thrive. And I quickly found that that was not the case. That his parents um, loved him deeply and that the choices that were made were often survival choices or were a result of trauma and mental illness. Oftentimes mental illness can be diagnosed as something when in fact, it's really just the outcome and the triggers of trauma that are making it to look like mental illness. And so for me, it was now I know his mom's story. Now I know his grandma's story. Now I know his sister's story. Um, How do we change this intergenerational cycle of maltreatment? And I don't believe that it could change by just adopting every child out of foster care. It really had to change by working with the family and saying from every point um, within these generations, how do we help heal the family? And I believe that that means strong support for children, which we have a good amount of, but we also need strong support for parents and grandparents and kin caregivers. I will tell you that when I first came up with this idea, I. I started the company, I sold my house, and I took a year to research best practices all over the country and decide what I liked best and, quite honestly, what fit with my convictions and the values that I had for myself and the values that I really cared about for my company. The values that I cared most about for Foster Care Alliance were the values of family, dignity, and generosity. And those three have really guided the direction that we've taken at Foster Care Alliance. For me, the biggest shift I will never forget was one time we had court, and I was going in. We were probably about a year and a half that I had been fostering my son, and I really just wanted his parents to surrender. I had built a good relationship with them. I felt like I was just ready to be done. But from what I'd mentioned previously, I didn't adopt him until after three and a half years. So You can imagine how that court case went. But every time I went to sit and pray for surrender, I found that I was tongue tied. I couldn't journal about it. I couldn't find the words. And I felt the Lord so clearly telling me, stop praying for surrender, but pray for salvation. Mm -hmm. For me, I learned that God is about outcomes, but not at the expense of people. But He's also about people, but not at the expense of outcomes. God cares about both. What I didn't know about the story is that at three years, They would surrender, but at one and a half years, it wasn't time. And the reason why was this, I got to court and God answered my prayer for salvation, but he didn't answer my prayer for, um, for surrender the court date. Uh, we, I went to walk in and my, my son's birth mom was standing outside of the courthouse and about to go through security, but she was just kind of waiting. And so I went and gave her a hug, talked to her as usual and said, are you going to go in? Are you, you know, are you coming? And she's like, well. Everything I own is in my backpack, but she had, um, a bottle of olive oil and some nail clippers and different things. And, um, they wouldn't allow her, um, to come in with all of those things in her bag. So they told her, well, you can just stash it behind a bush. And she said, Chelsea, if somebody steals it, everything I own is in that bag. So, of course, you know, I believe it was God just giving me this naive moment. I said, well, just lock it in my trunk. It'll be safe there. So we walk out to the parking deck and up three flights of stairs and lock it in my trunk and walk back to court and everything's great. Well, court does not go well. She, um, I have to, you know, say that she hasn't come to any doctor's appointments, and she, you know, and has missed visits. And they make me confirm a bunch of these things, which is always hard to do when you're building a relationship while giving facts. So she proceeds to get up and say terrible things about me, none of which were true. So the court date is over. She does not surrender, and quite honestly, we both are not loving each other right then. But we have the long walk and three flights of stairs back to my car to get her bag. So we're walking in silence and we're just kind of, I'm like, all right, we just gotta get here and you know, get the stuff and move on. And we get up there and she turns around after she gets her bag and is like, can I ask you a question? And I was like, sure. And she says, can you tell me what just happened in court? She was so nervous, traumatized, anxious about court. She didn't even remember what she'd said what they talked about, what the judge had said. And so we started talking about it. Well, this is what the judge needs you to do. This is what is part of the case. Let's write these down. Let's talk. And she says to me, Chelsea, I think you're the only person that's ever really loved me. And at that point, I was able to say that that was true, that I did love her and then was able to share with her the gospel and the fact that because I loved her, I wanted her to know Jesus. I wanted her to be in a place of thriving. I wanted her to, um, to have the best life she could have. And we talked about what that looked like and what her dreams and her goals were. And, and I really believe that that for me was a turning point in my heart of saying, what does God want me to do? And how does God want me to see people? And the outcomes were important, but the person was equally as important. And so three years, so I guess fast forward a year and a half later, three years in foster care, she ended up signing over a document, her and, um, and, Tyler's birth father both signed a document surrendering him directly to me um and we still keep a relationship um in fact through this um time has been really hard with COVID-19 and losing work and so um you know she reached out for groceries and help with um with housing and these types of things, and we still have a relationship uh, with her. We still, I talk to his grandmother almost every week. Um, He FaceTimes with his siblings and we're able to, uh, to still have a good relationship. So for me, it really started from a place of God changing my heart and then allowing me to say, okay, what do I want for all families in foster care? And my dream really would be this, that in foster care, that every family that comes through foster care would be able to say foster care was the best thing that ever happened to us because it gave me a chance to heal and get my family right. Um, right now, that's not the case, but that's definitely the the goal and the in the yeah. dream we'd like to see happen.
0: That's great. That's beautiful. Yeah, I remember. Um, so my wife and I also went through foster care training, and and we do foster care. And I remember the thing that kind of. Flipped a switch for me was that moment when I remember sitting in the course and they were like, our goal is to restore the relationship with the child, with their parent. And, and you have a role in that, even if you aren't, you know, you can, and they talked about how you can maintain a relationship with that family. And I never thought of it that way. I was like you, I was like, I'm going to come in, we're going to rescue a kid away from a bad situation as opposed to how do I bring restoration in their life and I'm a small part of that piece of that puzzle. And it, it may be for a short amount of time or it may be for a longer amount of time, but I'm just playing a role. Right. And and this idea that it could be a, a bigger picture and and looking at, at it from a from a macro perspective as opposed to the moment in time when that is happening was it was pretty eye opening yes. at least for me. And I know that's yes. that's difficult Absolutely. for people. Um, it, was that, yes. is that difficult
1: for you? People, Yes, ahead. you know, I think what shocks people the most is when you look at statistics um, for our state and for the country, but our state in particular in Georgia, it hovers between 83 and 84% of families that come into foster care. They come into foster care for solvable issues. Mm-hmm. That leaves, you know, that leaves the other, what, 16, 17% that come and for issues that can't be solved, like physical or sexual abuse, long-term incarceration, right? Those types of things. I think the general public thinks of foster care in the exact opposite way. We think, well, it's sort of an anomaly for a kid to be able to be reunified because the majority have been abused. That's not the case. The majority are coming in for neglect, for substance abuse, for lack of housing, for issues, honestly, of poverty, um, and of trauma. So we have had several moms who have come in and yes, they left their kid unattended, but they left their kid unattended because they had nowhere safe to take them. And they had to work in order to feed their kid and pay the rent or a mom who has been, you know, using since she was 12 years old and is now 20 something. And the addiction is so strong, but she can't afford To go somewhere for addiction counseling. She can't afford to do inpatient or outpatient. Where's her kid going to go? How's she going to work? How's she going to pay for it? She has no insurance. So they're coming in for issues that could be solved if our community really got around people before foster care ever happened. And so I think it's really, you know, it's definitely shocking to look at those statistics. I also think that for us, you know, one of our goals is yes, we want to do this great work with moms, but we also want to raise awareness that when people think of foster care, you, if you were to ask people, well, foster care, what does it mean? Who are the parties involved? They would say DFACS, you know, the Division of Family and Children's Services, Department of Human Services, whatever it's called in whatever state um, you're in, but they think DFACS, they think the child, they think the foster parent and nobody thinks that the birth parent actually has a really large part. Right. So yes, they're in, the children are in temporary custody of the state, but the parent does not lose their parental rights for a very long time. And the law actually dictates that for nine to 12 months, the parent likely will maintain their parental rights while they work that case plan. So foster care does not mean that the parent doesn't have a choice. It doesn't mean that the parent doesn't love their child and that they're not extremely consistent with their visits, with gifts, with phone calls, with working, Um, but again, Sometimes they just need that extra push and that extra help. And that's the difference between those of us that are in privileged, you know, middle and upper class. Um, We have people who help us. When bad things happen, we also would, you know, if we had a traumatic event take COVID-19, for example, right, has been traumatic for some people, but we have social support around us. So we have people we can talk to. We have people that have our backs, right? I mean, a silly example, but our cul-de-sac neighborhood has been passing toilet paper and paper towel as people run out, right? Like we have people, but without social support, there's so much research that shows that the ability to come back from trauma without any social support or positive community is virtually impossible. We wanna see psychological resilience. We wanna see them come back from trauma, but even more than that, we wanna see psychological growth. However, without a physically healthy body, without a community of social support, and without the coping mechanisms to be able to overcome the triggers that are constantly happening after these traumatic events, it is absolutely impossible to have psychological resilience or psychological growth. And so for these moms, it's, um, I love this example, you know, trauma is an injury, not a chronic illness. And I love the example of if you broke your leg, I'm not going to say run to the mailbox and run back. You'd say, I can't do that. Right. Maybe if I, if you give me some crutches or you help me down But if I have a broken leg and I have no cast on it and I have nothing, there's no way I'm running to the mailbox and back. And so we're asking moms to do what we see as very simple things like get a job or maintain housing or stop doing drugs. But to them they're going, but I have an injury and I can't, I can't physically can't do it unless you're willing to help me.
0: Yeah. It often comes off as very callous as like, Oh, just, just solve this one problem. When in fact, that problem can be so insurmountable in the eyes of the person that's, that's facing it, right?
1: Yes, um, it's so, very complicated.
0: Yeah, so Foster Care Alliance, like you are, um, you're not government-based. What, why, why do you feel you need to exist? What gap are you, um, are you helping fill that is unable to be filled by the current system that exists around the foster family?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we should absolutely exist for many reasons. One is we are the only people that are doing this right now in terms of our unique model. So coming at it from three phases of trauma intervention, there is trauma intervention for PTSD, but it is not often diagnosed and treated as PTSD in these moms. However, 98% of the moms who we see are coming in with complex PTSD. Um, the stories are so horrific that were I to see them on a screen in a movie, I would likely have to walk out. It would make my stomach sick. So we are really not going at the problem like we should. We're giving case plans and checklists, and they're, they're often accomplishing these checklists in a period of time, but then we're seeing children come back into care or we're seeing children still not in a healthy and thriving family. So we believe that we exist because we need to see this underlying cause. Oftentimes when it comes to large government entities or even large companies, it's very hard to change your systems and your policies quickly. It's also really hard to do research, and to make these types of shifts based on new and reoccurring evidence. So we believe that we exist to be able to start showing these results. We have great support from the Division of Family and Children's Services here in Georgia. We love them, they love us, we're working very closely. But we believe because we're small and because we're not tied to the government and we're not tied to anything in particular with any sort, of, um, any sort of agenda besides us saying simply we want to show best practices, we're actually able to do the research and be able to do these rigorous control trials to be able to look at it and say, okay, is this working? Does doing trauma intervention move the needle? Faster and more efficiently for our families. And once we can prove those things, then we have the ability to talk to not only government entities, but be able to franchise and train other service providers, as well as work with um, stakeholders such as policymakers and government officials on what this looks like for us to be able to have a better system for our moms. So I feel like putting us as a nonprofit. Um, allows us to really be able to do this work without having to convince people to pay us at the same time. Because when you're doing things that are innovative and different, it takes a minute for people to buy in. And so for us to just say, okay, but here's the bill, it costs $5,000, you know, 5370, to be exact, for moms (laughs) to go through this program. They're looking at us going, but we do it service-based and what they attend, and this is how much we're willing to give. And so there's a whole system. We've actually found it quite hard to contract with the government, um, with the division, because They don't have a category for us. What we do isn't necessarily all billable services to them. And we don't want our moms, we don't want to have to say to our moms, well, you can't do this piece and you can't have a full trauma intervention and you can't have full trauma recovery because we can't get this piece paid for. Right um, and so for us, it sets us up to be able to do experimental work um, and be able to offer the very best. Um, I also have a team and a staff of the very best. My clinical director has been doing this work for over 20 years she 's currently about to um, they 're about to release a documentary on um, complex sexual trauma in women and how it affects them as parents and mothers and generations and she was one of the featured um, featured, uh, trauma that I think they call them traumaticians or something, <laughs> but she is very, very well versed in trauma. And so what's amazing is I have people like that on my team who this is their life's work. And, you know, we are starting a study right now with Notre Dame and the Leo Institute to see what the economic impact is because that's really important to be able to show in our world. Um, But what's exciting is we always say, we don't know that there will be a day we're not doing some sort of research study um, simply because we can, and we can figure out what's best and we can always offer our moms the best. What's crazy is that our population needs the best because they're the most complex and however they have the least access to the best. And so we want to flip the table on that. And we want to see that just because you can't, you don't have the money doesn't mean that you don't deserve the very best in treatment.
0: That's beautiful. That's great. Um, so you, had, you mentioned a few times about, uh, the current COVID situation and lockdown and what impact this is having. One of the things that we've been trying to talk about is that there is an emotional stress put on, I mean, it's put on us, right? Like we have our kids coming in and out and we're, we're adjusting to a new life, but for somebody that is coming out of a traumatic situation or living in the midst of a traumatic situation, this is, this is not, a, this is, this is going to have rolling impact. Um, where do you guys see this having an impact on the um, foster care system, the stress on the foster care system, but also on the individuals and parents um, needing, support from the foster care system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a pretty complex answer, probably complicated (laughs) answer to that. Um, there's, you know, a lot of impacts that it's having for, um, you know, birth parents in general, there's a huge stress, right? So all of the moms that were in our program had jobs now, like two are still employed. Right. So that's had a huge stress. Um, not being able to make the rent, not being able to even buy groceries, that's been difficult. We as an organization have stepped in and our moms can request groceries at any time. And we send them an Instacart, um, uh, gift card and we have donors who have stepped up and stepped around that, which is wonderful. And we've worked, you know, to really help them to figure out the rent situation and, and partnered with others on that. Um, it's been really, hard for the moms who have worked their case plan and were very close to being reunified with their children. And now there are things on their case plan like job stability and housing that is no longer. And they feel like they've taken steps backwards. They feel like they've let their kids down. They feel like the time clock is still ticking and every, and we're going to lose our kids now. Um, DFACS has assured us that that is not the case. Um, I will say DeFax gets a bad reputation in a lot of places. Those that we work with have been amazing. Um, One thing that we were assured of was there has been quite a bit of relapse um, with substance abuse. You're stuck in a house by yourself and you need to cope. Um, DFACS has said that in this time, if they are honest with their case manager and say, I just need to let you know, I used, I'm not using regularly, but I did, and this has happened, Defax isn't gonna drug test them in this time. Um, at least in, you know, some of the counties that we work with. I can't say that across the state, but, you know, I've had case managers and uh, directors who've said that, and that's amazing. That has taken pressure off our moms. Now, of course, we don't tell them that ahead of time because we don't want them to relapse, but, you know, that's been different. I would say moms who have struggled with suicide before, it's been really hard. Even those who haven't have had thoughts of suicide. And I feel like we've had to step in and say, we're not going to make much progress on a case plan right now, but we want all of our moms to be alive and at the end of this. And so we've really had to step into some crisis moments of, um, of walking them through, Um, these moments, we've had to change some policies for us in terms of what this looks like. Um, We have done telemedicine and we've continued to do Zoom and, uh, you know, and a HIPAA compliant platform for therapies. The internet is unreliable. They might be in a home with 10 People And so trying to get alone to do therapy and talk about trauma is not going well, right? Um, So it's been very, very difficult. We have had to try not to be discouraged and simply to say, okay, we're going to do the best we can do. And so some we have continued to check in, but we have deferred their therapy until we can get them back in the office, Um, you know, and so we've had to really make some adjustments. Um, You know, I would say on the nonprofit side, the stress has been there of a lot of companies aren't making it. A lot of nonprofits aren't making it. Donors are pulling out. Foundations aren't giving to new grantees, right. As a young foundation with no endowment, fund, or I'm sorry, as a young um, nonprofit with no endowment fund and only three months reserve, um, you know, which quite honestly for our size of nonprofit, having a three month reserve was quite an accomplishment and it's gone now. Um, you know, and so we've been, you know, we had to go down to two days a week and what did that look like? And, you know, so it's been, it's definitely been a challenge, um, for us, but in the midst of it, You know, the church has really come around our moms in a great way. And we've had some really powerful stories of people who have stepped in. And like I said, we've really prioritized things like groceries, um, laptops for kids. We had one mom who had four children and one cell phone, and she was trying to continue doing virtual learning with her four elementary and middle school age children on one phone. Um not possible. And so we're actually working with a church right now to do a summer tutoring program to help kids catch back up, you know, things that we never thought we would be doing for our moms because it wasn't part of our initial mission. Um, we've kind of had to step in and be creative, but I will say my team has reacted beautifully. Um, the innovation threw us for a loop for a week and we were reopened within a week, but we had to Mm -hmm. figure it out. Um, you know, we did have to cut some services because we wanted to be able to guarantee our work and we wanted to be able to, um, not just waste people's time, but know that what we were doing was effective. And so some of our, you know, our hands-on parenting classes and modeling parenting weren't working. So we said, we're bringing those back in August. Um, but we tried it and it didn't work. Right. Um, so all this to say we are reopening partially one day a week come the first week of June, just to start on ramping some new moms, but our groups used to be 10 to 12. Now our groups are four to five. Um, you know, and a lot of social distancing that'll happen in that case. It's really weird to think about taking temperatures and wearing masks when you're in therapy. Um, but we're doing it, and, uh, and we made it through the storm, and I really feel grateful for that. Um, in terms of defects, I think we're gonna see a huge influx of foster children after this. Right now, the only children that are really being removed are children who are being physically or sexually abused, and it's very obvious, right? So the child is telling you, and there's very clear signs, um, which is scary, because that yeah. is often not the reason why kids get removed, right? And right. sometimes the kids have no one to report it to because they're locked in their home. Um, yeah. Like, and we was, go ahead. That was
0: one of the discussions that I had had with uh, some families and with uh, our uh, workers as well, social workers, as they were saying that like the influx of kids into care is stopped or slowed down because the reporting mechanism, which is schools and and, and public environment, were people see things
1: happen. Yeah.
0: It's they're Mm -hmm. non-existent. And so this it's still happening, but it's happening behind a closed door, which is such a scary and, and, um, just heartbreaking kind of situation.
1: It is really scary, but I will tell you, um, you know, I think one of the, you know, silver linings, will you of it is I think that those people who really care have really shown up in the moment and you can really see who this is a job for and who this is a calling for. And there's one particular county administrator whom I love that does family preservation um, in Gwinnett County. And she and I were just talking, we've gotten to be friends. And so we kind of checked in throughout, how you doing, you know, that sort of thing. And um, just as friends, but one, she was telling me one night that there was this one child who, um, you know, they were, investigating and that sort of thing. And she was telling me, you know, do you know how hard it is to do an, an investigative interview over Zoom when you don't know who's standing on the other side of the computer? Oh, yeah. Like you tell the parent to leave, but you don't know that the parent left. And so the child is likely not going to be. And so she was telling me, you know, that there was so much anxiety that in the middle of the night she couldn't sleep and her case manager couldn't either and texted her and said, can I have special permission? I promise I'll wear a mask can I just go lay eyes on them? And she was like, yes. And so I think, you know, we talk about, you know, I often see thank you, doctors, nurses, all of that. And yes, thank you. We are so grateful. But I think the unsung, some of these unsung heroes and frontline workers are our case managers who are risking their life and health to lay eyes on children and make sure that they're safe. Um, and you know, you know, we can tell now which case managers, I mean, are willing to risk their life for their children and they need to be celebrated. Um, cause this has been a very challenging time, um, for them and, you know, and I think we're I think we're going to see a huge spike in numbers um, simply because rent will be due again and we're going to see a lot of evictions. Um, summer lunch, you know, has always been an issue. Schools have been providing throughout this school year somewhat. Is that going to continue probably not, but they're still not going to have jobs, right? right? So there's still there's still going to be a lot of that. Not to mention, you know, we have moms who were in domestic violence homes and we were trying to get them to leave and go out. But now it's shelter in place. You don't have a choice but to leave, but to stay. And so, you know, and shelters are filling up so quickly um, and they're trying to social distance. So their numbers are down. It's just for the population that's really unseen and forgotten. um, This has been really devastating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I want, I want to respect your time, so I, I will let you go. But before we do that, this is Foster Care Awareness Month, um, May. And so I know there are people out there that want to know how they can help. Maybe maybe they aren't at a place where they're ready to to be a foster parent. Maybe they're, they don't know of a way to get involved. How can people both support what you're doing, but also support um, in their community and be aware of, of what is happening in their community from a foster um, perspective.
1: Yep, absolutely. So like I said before, foster care is so much more than just being a foster parent. There are so many um, pieces that need to be um, that need to be met and so it's not a one foster family can help solve the problem it's that we need the whole community to come around these families and so there's many ways to get involved um there's an organization here in georgia but is in several states called promise 686 um, And we love them, work very closely with them. You can join a care community with them. You can mentor a foster child. You can bring meals. You can, um, you know, be a part of coordinating meals. There's different levels that you can do. We also are working with them to put care communities around birth families who are reunifying or who are trying to avoid coming into care. Join a birth family community of care um, or care community. We would love for you to do that. We are currently in the process of trying to get small groups and, um, and neighborhoods together to put together thank you baskets and emergency packets and things like this for our defects case managers, for the ones that are on the front lines, to say thank you for a lot of them. They don't get paid much and they may be in the same situation feeling like, they're scared of crossing into poverty. And so we want to be able to support them. That's huge. Um, reach out to your local defects, um, or department of human services, whatever it looks like, reach out, ask, is there a kid that needs a mentor? Um, I've got some extra hours. I could do a zoom call and tutor someone in math or writing or, um, you know, science. I, you know, because, You have abilities and jobs and work. You have the ability to mentor um, and to tutor a lot of these kids. And a lot of this can be done virtually. Um, I would love to see that moving forward. Um, And then lastly, I would say, you know, donate if you can to places like us, but also to places like your local food bank and those that are meeting these needs of diapers and um and food and rental assistance and step up step in um and help us be able to do this i would love for you to give to foster care alliance however wherever your heart is we want money to be used because every we want our children and our families to be affected well and so it's important that we stay funded but it's also so important that um, some of these other places stay funded have the donations um, and have the place and have what they need in order for us to serve these families as a community. One more way that you can give that's kind of creative and we've had a couple neighborhoods do is a neighborhood gift card drive. So everybody has unused gift cards, everybody has um, partially used gift cards and everybody has the ability to order gift cards online. It could be $5, it could be $2, it could be $200. We would love to see people send gift cards to us, Um, so do a gift card drive in the neighborhood. See how many you can get together, send them to us, we'll put them together and we'll give them out to families in need that are involved um, in foster care for our children and our families.
0: Thank you for your time, Um, thank you for what you're doing and the heart behind what you're doing. Because it is true, there's so many facets to this issue and there are so many steps that we can take and so many people involved um, in ways that we don't even know, right? People involved in, in the making sure that people have opportunity available to them, that they're not stuck in a situation. So thank you for your, your work and your support. And hopefully we can connect again after this COVID situation and talk about what were the opportunities that opened out of it, you know, what, what doors were opened. Um, yeah. And... Um, but uh, thank you for the for what you're doing at the Foster Care alliance. We really appreciate that. it. Thank you for joining us. If you know of people making a difference in their community, we want to hear about them. Send us a message on Facebook at GA Opportunity. And don't forget to like us while you're there. The Breakthrough Podcast is a production of the Georgia Center for Opportunity. You can find out all the work that we do to help break down the barriers leading to poverty at GeorgiaOpportunity.org.